This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 15235 kHz, on the 19-meter band to West Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. I'm Jazarar on the show with me, Asanda Matsunyane and Fikila Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour. South Africa's suspended police commissioner readies for a fight. Charges laid against two top apartheid leaders. In economics, Kia Motors plans to launch its first sports sedan next year. And in sport, Tokyo Sechwale takes his presidential campaign to CAF. Now for the news with Asanda Matsunyane. Good evening. South African President Jacob Zuma says that if the Constitutional Court accepts his proposed solution to the Nkandla saga, there will be no need for them to look at the powers of the public protector. Zuma has proposed to pay back some of the money spent on the security upgrades at his home in Nkandla. The powers are due to come under scrutiny on Tuesday next week in the case that the EFF has lodged. The president wrote to the court on Tuesday setting out the proposed settlement. Senior Constitutional Court reporter Candice Nolan has the details. In his papers, opposing the EFF's case for the Constitutional Court to affirm the powers of the public protector, President Zuma said it was premature, that the case is without any legal basis, and that it's a thinly veiled attempt to further the EFF's political agenda. But now, President Zuma says he wrote to the court in the interest of finalizing the matter once and for all. The president proposes that the Auditor General and the Finance Minister appoint someone to determine how much he owes. The president says if the court accepts his proposal, next week's hearing will not need to deal with the powers of the public protector. The DA, EFF and public protector are yet to respond. Meanwhile, President Jacob Zuma's lawyer has confirmed that the president will pay back money spent on non-security features on his Ngandla private home after Finance Minister and Auditor General have determined his liability. There have been mixed reactions to President Zuma's proposed court settlement to end the controversy. EFF leader Julius Malema says any settlement on the Ngandla repayment should reaffirm the public protector's powers. Zuma's lawyer Michael Halley. The proposal which sits before the Constitutional Court at the moment is an endeavour to bring about a mechanism using a Chapter 9 institution like the Auditor General which would aid and assist if the court deems it necessary in determining what the audited expenditure was and what the audited contribution then would be that the President ought to pay. The President will abide by whatever amount has been determined by the Auditor General and the Treasury official, and uh, he commits himself to that payment. 
The Namibian government says it is ready to perform at a higher level in 2016 because of the groundwork covered last year. Speaking during the official opening of the first cabinet meeting for 2016, President Heige Gaingob said great strides have been made in laying the basis for a more transparent society and a culture of high performance. We have made significant strides in laying the basis for a more transparent society and a culture of high performance. We took difficult decisions last year to lay the foundation for more transparency. And I am proud that all of us pulled in the same direction in this regard. The world is once again asking scientists and drug makers to rapidly come up with a vaccine for Zika. Scientists around the world know even less about Zika than they did about the Ebola virus that caused an unprecedented epidemic in West Africa last year. Still, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and the Butantet Institute in Brazil have started work on potential candidates for a Zika vaccine, and several biotech firms are in the race. Finally, Lebanese soldiers have killed two gunmen and arrested at least 27 suspected militants, including a commander from the Islamic State group, in a raid in the town of Assal near the border with Syria. According to a security source, among those detained was Abu Bakr al-Rakawi, a local commander of the Islamic State group, and three high-profile insurgents. He says the army carried out the raid after receiving intelligence that Rakawi and others were in the northeastern town which has suffered from a spillover of violence from nearly five years of conflict in Syria. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Very good evening. Welcome to Africa Digest, live from Johannesburg at six minutes after seven Central African time. Suspended South African National Police Commissioner Ria Piecha says she's no criminal. Piecha was reacting to the police watchdog body IPID's recommendation that she, together with other South African police service senior officials, must be criminally charged for their role in the 2012 police shootings that left 34 minors dead. Amos Pacho reports. I want to say to you, I did not lie, and I am not a criminal. Ready for the battle of her life, facing a criminal investigation and a commission of inquiry into her fitness to hold office, Ria Piecha is not willing to go down silently, accusing those in authority of violating due process. She says she has learned about the IPID finding through the media. I find yesterday's announcement by the acting head of the Independent Police Investigative Directorate Directorate Israel Hamanyani, that charges are to be brought against me for allegedly defeating the ends of justice, very concerning and opportunistic. According to what he said when he made the announcement, the investigations are not complete, not only for me, but for many others. The undignified haste to announce my eminent charging smacks of a sustained, concerted effort by the people and entities in the police ministry to continue with a relentless campaign that seeks to harass and to intimidate me. 
Pierre says since her suspension last year, she has been vilified and there are those trying to convict her in the court of public opinion. She claims the victimization has now been extended to her loyalists in the SAPS. People that I worked with are harassed, destabilized, misplaced from their positions. Some are suspended, some are resigning. They are being aggressively driven out of subs or are rendered useless by having their responsibilities taken away from them or being put in posts where they do not have meaningful work. Fear and uncertainty has once again gripped police management. This is bad as it erodes subs of good skills as well as the much-needed management capability. Piera says she, however, has full confidence in the justice system and she will be vindicated. She says she will comply with all the investigations, including the commission of inquiry set up by President Jacob Zuma to determine her fitness to hold office. The abuse of public funds in an attempt to run parallel investigations ahead of the apex inquiry set up by the president clearly seeks to undermine any measure of truth that the board of inquiry will unearth, which further strengthens my determination and resolve to face all the set-up legal platforms, including the courts of this country. I surmise that there is a deliberate effort to force me to abandon my quest to set the record straight and offer closure and clarity to this matter. I remain committed to fully participate in the established inquiry processes and I will not be deterred by nefarious motives. Political parties have widely welcomed IPID's announcement that criminal cases must be opened against Pieja and former Northwest Police Commissioner Zuki Swambombom for defeating the ends of justice. The cases relate to the role of the police in the 2012 Marigana police shootings that left 34 minors dead and 78 workers wounded. The Falam Commission found that Pieja was evasive during the inquiry. The ANC's parliament spokesperson Moloto Motapo. The IP uh, process that uh, they briefed Parliament about yesterday is a consequence of the very recommendations of uh, the Falam Commission and uh, we uh, welcome uh, such a comprehensive uh, uh, implementation of the recommendations including the process uh, by the Presidential Commission that uh, will soon be underway. However, Pierre has the support of the police union pop group. Spokesperson Richard Mamabolo explains. The motive is quite clear. On the one hand, there's clearly a move to ensure that she's isolated. And of course, we do not believe that uh, we have said it again that uh, as it relates to the Marikana issue, we have not seen or been convinced of any reason why she should uh, be suspended or rather investigated uh, as it happens now. Uh, so, uh, and of course, I think uh, even within the SAPS, we we know very well that uh, the acting national commissioner is hell-bent on becoming the national commissioner and uh, of course they're doing anything in their powers to ensure that uh, they achieve that. It is not clear yet what exact charges Pierre will face. The IPID report has now been handed over to the National Prosecuting Authority for a decision. However, efforts to get comment from the prosecution's authority were unsuccessful. I'm Amos Paro in Johannesburg. South African political commentator Dr. Somadoda Fikani says Zuma's sudden change of heart to pay for the non-security upgrades at his home in Kandla in KwaZulu-Natal is just a calculated move ahead of the Constitutional Court sitting on the matter.
In the world of politics, very rarely do you have coincidence. This is a calculated move to preempt the constitutional court ruling on the matter, and also it is meant to remove the steam of the president's delivery of the State of the Nation address, which was likely to be overshadowed by this matter or even disruptions to that effect. Now, does this vindicate public protector Tulima Donsela with all the attacks that she went through after releasing this report on the upgrades on President Zuma's Nkandla residence? She will feel very much relieved and vindicated, especially when she seemed to be moving towards the end of her term to say that on the biggest test of her career, she seemed to have come out winning. Now, Dr. Figeni, how does this boost the economic freedom fighters' political clout? The party was being accused of just being antagonizing of the president with no direction and even as far as going to court to sort of force the president to make payment as recommended by the public protector. Are they as well going to be seen in a different light? I do think that this will be a political capital and a boost for them to say that they were quite energetic and they were going for broke on this particular matter and they seem to have won in the end in the battle of attrition. And that in itself, I think, will win them a lot of favor. Although some may have misgivings about the tactics, but that in the end, it seemed to have worked that they went for all possible avenues will certainly put them in a stronger position. And now local government elections are coming up very soon. We're not sure of the date yet. Should we expect interesting things to happen during the build-up to the local government elections? Will this change the mindset of uh, the voter towards uh, this issue with the ANC? I think ANC brand is a very strong brand, even though its leader might be dented at this stage. It has survived one too many scandals and one too many other things. So it will not just be on one case that ANC rise or fall. It may also be on local issues and how services delivered. But again, the contestation of ANC constituencies is going to be heavy and it's going to be fierce. Now, the sudden admission has also been seen as a boost to the economic freedom fighters' political clout in South Africa, as the party was the one that's been leading a call for Zuma to pay back the money after the public protector recommended that Zuma pay for the non-security upgrades. That was Dr. Samadora Fikeni, South African political analyst, on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwa Nangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Live from Johannesburg, this is Africa Digest. I'm Jazara. The newly formed Anti-Racism Action Forum in South Africa approached Johannesburg's Hillbrow Police Station earlier today to lay 22 charges of human rights violations against former President F.W. de Klerk and former apartheid police minister Adrian Flock. This for their alleged roles in the last years of the apartheid regime. De Klerk says he's confident that this latest attempt to charge him will fail like many others before it. More from Zandi Khadebe, coordinator and spokesperson of the Anti-Racism Action Forum. I think for us um, South Africans, we have been misled when it comes to racism. We don't understand what racism is and what it constitutes. And the reason why we do not understand what racism is is informed by some of the actions that were taken by both F.W.D. Clark and his minister, Adrian Flock. If you recall, F.W. did not apply for amnesty, you know, in the TRC, even though we don't respect the TRC because it was a process of, you know, it was based on reconciliation and not justice. But as the head of state, um, FW refused to apply for amnesty, and that effectively mm. means that he refused to acknowledge that apartheid was a crime against humanity. Mm. So we have seen these cases, and we have not seen anyone agitate for them, because, again, anything in this country that has to do with the suffering of the majority of the people, mm. black people, is always compromised. The same goes for Flock. In fact, he refused, um, he only admitted to one incident and there were no loss of lives and denied everything else. We have evidence that he did in fact commit massacre upon massacre between the periods of 1989 and 1993, just before the elections. You would recall that our townships from Sibukeng and Soweto were engulfed in violence and blood and this was the doing of Adrian and Flock, mm. two now, perpetrators of apartheid who have denied their involvement. Mm. Now, many might say that um, this action um, has been uh, prompted by the recent racial outbursts. We know that since the beginning of the year, um, the uh, racial tensions have been at an all-time high. Exactly. Would this be a fair um, uh, fair analysis, you know, or comment rather, on the reasons behind this uh, action at this moment? It is more than fair, um, but it does not limit there because as Arabs, we have been watching, I mean, we, we, we are representatives from different institutions and organizations who concern ourselves with racism in South Africa, how it manifests and constitutes itself. Yes, the recent um, um, uh, remarks by Tenisparo to us presented an opportune time to say, look, let's make an intervention at one level to educate, um, try and educate people about white racism is. Because what you've seen following um, the tennis battle saga was black people responding, you know, to their pain and suffering. You know, the case of Zenati Kumalo, who had said, look, I, I do not like white people and therefore I am racist. You have cases whereby FW himself, you know, through his foundation, has taken people to the Human Rights um, Commission, mm. again, complaining about racism. Most of those people in that list are black people. 
Now, if you look or understand the definition of racism, you'll see that racism is about institutional power and black people who still exist as the landless and the dispossessed. We do not have the power to bring about, you know, what FW and, you know, white people in general can and have done historically to black people. Mm. Now, over the years, we've been talking reconciliation, we've been talking a rainbow nation, and um, uh, over the years, there have been some people, you know, from the apartheid era who were part and parcel of all the atrocities that took place during that time, coming forward and um, apologizing. And um, Adrian Flock is one of those people. He has been going around washing uh, people's feet and doing all sorts of, of, of symbolic things um, in, in, in his uh, words, um, expressing his um, remorse for what had happened during that time. Do you think that this is enough? <laughs> I think it's an insult because when people were killed, when land was taken, nobody came to us to say, look, can we reconcile? And then he said, yes, you can wash my feet. That was never the case. And in fact, reconciliation comes from the, um, the perpetrator's um, narrative. Black people, if you look at the liberation history of this country, the demand was, was land. You know, even your ANC, we know they've compromised now. APLA, the PAC, whose members are still languishing in jail, by the way. These people wanted land. We didn't want white people to recognize or like us or to take us in or incorporate. We just want what is rightfully ours. So it is not, I think it's, it's an illusion. It is disingenuous for, you know, perpetrators of racism and white supremacy to expect us to accept, you know, reconciliation mm. when we have nothing to show for it. Mm. We, we continue to die in checks. We continue to be victims of, you know, institutional racism. We are called monkeys because we don't have land. We don't have dignity. We don't even have our personhood. So, un- unfortunately, reconciliation has not helped and it will not help. The only thing that will help is justice in the form of land distribution and repatriation to black people. Mm. Zandi, earlier I'd spoken to Yerushka Chetty, um, who's uh, one of your colleagues there, and she'd mentioned that um, uh, one of the other plans is to approach the Human Rights Commission. Tell us just very briefly about that. I know this is a very big topic. There's so much we can go into. Um, Tell us about your um, uh, deliberations with the Human Rights Commission and um, if this plan of action is rejected or doesn't work for you, what then? I'm calling from the Hilbopori station, as you might be aware. We were we are here to lay criminal charges against both accused number one FW, accused number two Flock. And from here, it's 22 charges and it's massacres that have not been um, recorded. It's massacres, you know, victims of black people that have not been acknowledged. From here, we're going to move to the Human Rights um, Council and lay a charge against racism. Um, for us, it, it does not really matter if it is, in fact, if it is rejected, it will confirm our assertions. And that's the fact that there is no justice for South Africans, I mean, for black South Africans in particular. You know, the current system, as we know, is informed still by Western values. Our law is founded on da, um, Roman Dutch law. So it would not surprise us. But we are doing this also as a purpose to educate our people so that we don't find ourselves in a situation whereby when they do pass the legislation to criminalize individual acts of racism, we don't find ourselves victim of mm. that law which the ANC, the EFF and DA are advocating for. That was Zandi Khadebe, coordinator and spokesperson of the South African Anti-Racism Action Forum, talking to Channel Africa's Zikonamiso. 
A case of Zika virus through sexual transmission, not a mosquito bite, has been reported in the United States. The Center for Disease Control, CDC, says a patient infected in Dallas, Texas, is likely, likely to have been infected via sexual contact. The person had not traveled to infected areas, but their partner had returned from Venezuela in South America. Zika is carried by mosquitoes and has been linked to thousands of babies being born with underdeveloped brains in the Americas. The World Health Organization has now declared the virus a global public health emergency. More from Peter Horby, Professor of Emerging Infectious Diseases and Global Health at Oxford University in the United Kingdom. There was a possible case reported in the literature from 2008 where a husband may have infected his wife in the U.S. And there has been a case of infectious virus detected in the sperm of one man. And this new case you know, adds to the evidence, but I think it's likely to be you know, a rare occurrence. Now, one of the problems with this disease, Professor, is that the majority of patients don't present with any symptoms. Can it be spread by the 80% of people who show no symptoms? Well, what we don't know is, is whether there's any risk of sexual spread from patients who are asymptomatic, and I think that's something that, that will need some thorough investigation. Whether the patients who are asymptomatic can spread the infection to mosquitoes when they're bitten, it's another matter, and that probably is the case. Is it known at this stage how long the virus persists in semen and when it's safe to have sexual intercourse again? No. So this new case from the U.S. really highlights the need to do that research because it's very hard to give you know, evidence-based advice based on what we know at the moment because the information is really very limited. Currently, some public health agencies are recommending that if you've been to an endemic area for Zika, the men should use a condom for one month. And if they've actually had symptomatic Zika virus infection, so they've been ill with Zika virus, then they should use a condom for six months. That's just based on what very little evidence we have at the moment. And we really need to do more research so we can refine that advice. What about those pregnant women or those hoping to become pregnant and whose partners have travelled to the affected countries? Well, that's really the, the risk group that we're most worried about. We, we all have seen the pictures of the children with the, the small heads, the microcephaly from Brazil. And the worry is if you get infected in pregnancy, it may affect your fetus. There's two groups of women that the advice needs to be aimed at. One is those who are traveling to an area with Zika. And the current advice is that they should really consider carefully whether that's a necessary trip or not. And then there are the women who already live in those areas. For them, the advice is really about trying to minimize the risk of them getting Zika by minimizing their exposure to the infected mosquitoes. What would you say is the biggest challenge in fighting this disease? The biggest challenge is actually that it's a mosquito-borne virus and that the mosquitoes that carry this virus are very successful and actually they're spread over you know, most of the tropics of the world, South America, Africa and Asia. So there's huge populations are exposed to these mosquitoes and whilst we can reduce the mosquito populations, it's really not possible to get rid of them. So there's always going to be some risk. How, in your view, can the battle against Zika be won? Well, I think we have to think you know, short-term and long-term. Short-term, we have to minimise the risk to those that have the greatest danger, which is the pregnant women and the unborn babies, and we have to really get the message out about the ways they can reduce their risk. Uh, we have to do research so we really understand the magnitude of the risk and how it can be reduced, both during pregnancy but also from sexual transmission. And in the longer term, we have to look at better ways of controlling the mosquito and potentially the development of a vaccine. 
but that will take several years. That's Peter Horby, Professor of Emerging Infectious Diseases and Global Health at Oxford University, talking to Elizabeth Lediger. Now, don't forget, come up, we've got our economic report, and uh, that's around quarter to the hour. Thereafter, our final sports report for Africa Digest on this Wednesday night. The South African Revenue Services Customs Control officials have busted ephedrine and abalone valued at more than six hundred thousand US dollars in two separate incidents at the OR Tambo International Airport. A routine inspection led to the arrest of a Tanzanian male passenger from Dar es Salaam who was carrying two pieces of luggage. Inspection of the bags unveiled seven transparent bags containing a crystal substance that turned out to be ephedrine. Khomotso Mopulane reports. The passenger and contents were handed over to police for further investigations. Officials say when this Tanzanian passenger was asked to put his luggage through the custom scanner, it revealed 10 clear plastic bags that contained a white crystal substance. In the second incident, a detector dog again identified a constituent of abalone worth just over 120000 at the international airport. Sandy Lememela, South African Revenue Services spokesperson, explains. A detected dog identified a consignment of abalone worth over 2 million rands at the O.R. Tambo International Airport. SARS Customs Control officials scored yet another bust of ephedrine. This resulted in the arrest of a Tanzanian male passenger who was coming from Dar es Salaam. Last month, recoveries were made at the airport when authorities seized 230 tiny containers. Inside were 80 African bullfrogs, 10 of which were dead, and 150 rare rain frogs, all allegedly captured in the Limpopo province. Their destination was Taiwan, where some were to be sold as pets and others to exotic food markets. Pet shop owners in the country are reporting huge spikes in queries about exotic animals such as amphibians. Experts say these frogs can fetch hundreds of thousands of rent on the black market. For Channel Africa, I'm Komutsomopulani in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Live from Johannesburg, this is Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad. If you've just joined us, welcome to the show. 7.30 exactly. Social entrepreneurship seems to be a growing trend in Africa's business sector. Attendees at the Pan-African Social Entrepreneurship Conference held at the Johannesburg-based Gordon Institute of Business Science and hosted by the Mail and Guardian newspaper got the opportunity to spend a day with leading thinkers in the social enterprise field. Entrepreneurs were given network opportunities and education on how to be a successful entrepreneur and how to get funding. But today we want to unpack what really is this phenomenon called social entrepreneurship. What exactly happens in it? To help us answer the question, Channel Africa spoke to Karen Kriecher, Senior Programs Manager at the Gordon Institute of Business Science. Also Andy Hadfield, the CEO of For Good, and Tendai Mashingadze, Team Leader of the Muzinda Hub in Zimbabwe. 
We held a session to really unpack what social entrepreneurship is, not just in the South African context, because there have been lots of conversations in SA, but really to start understanding what the continental perspective is and to share experiences. So social entrepreneurs are this wonderful new breed of what I'm starting to call super entrepreneurs. They are people who spot opportunity in their communities, in the world around them, and they set up organizations that have social good as their goal. So their primary mission is to really achieve a change that will improve the lives and livelihoods of others. But what really distinguishes this from our classic charity models is that social enterprises um, make a profit. And this culturally is often quite complicated for us because we always think that if we're doing good, there's this, you know, we're driven by virtue and, and we shouldn't be paid for it. But mm. when we really look at what makes um, social change sustainable, it's the fact that there's um, a sustainable income stream that really sits behind it so that the organization can grow, so that there's stability and that there's predictability. Social entrepreneurs are this wonderful new breed of people who not only see opportunity all around them, so in rural areas, in in townships, in peri-urban areas, wherever big business tends not to see opportunity because it's too hard to go there, our social entrepreneurs are doing great work because seeing opportunity through a different lens. But most importantly, they're making a profit. And because of this, they're able to achieve substantial change in the places where they work. Andy, thank you for joining us. Coming into our studios, we really appreciate you coming through. Tell us a little bit about your company, For Good. Uh, we just got an explanation what a, a social entrepreneur business, uh, the model, what it looks like. But tell us a little bit about what you get up to with your business. We're a very classic social enterprise. Um, I was kind of, I was a very capitalistic entrepreneur <laughs> prior to this. What happened, man? <laughs> oh, you'll tell us your story. Sure, go ahead. Well, we can tell the story. <laughs> and I think I'm, I'm still a capitalistic entrepreneur. Um, and I really like what Karen said about just viewing the world through a, through a different lens. So, for good, one of the nice ways I like to explain it is we're like online dating for the social sector. Okay. We try and connect people to causes because one of the biggest problems uh, in an active democracy like ours is that there's this groundswell of people that want to give back. They want to get involved in their country. They realize we can't sit back and let the government do everything. We have to, we have to do something ourselves. But they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go. And that's what we do. We connect people to causes. What's more interesting is from a, from a social entrepreneurship point of view, we have a fairly solid business model behind that, which is uh, we allow big corporates within South Africa to white label our platform and use it as a piece of software, basically, to run their employee volunteering programs. That's how we make money. Uh, it's also how we can really start to scale. And we, we had some discussions about scale yesterday. Mm-hmm. Is that if, if you imagine it's quite hard to get you know, 50,000 South Africans to do something. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to t- get 10 corporates with 30,000 staff each yeah, yeah. to do something. Mm-hmm. So there's some really powerful forces at work here. And, mm-hmm. and that's where we were trying to play. Well, very interesting indeed. Let, let's move on to Tendai, who's also on the line, team leader of Muzenda Hub. And uh, he's from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, Tendai, thank you for joining us. What is Muzenda Hub? Muzinda Hub is a digital skills school, if I put it across like that, to get uh, unemployed uh, Zimbabwean graduates, and we train them for free to code. Um, we need to create apps and websites or any other custom-made software. And then uh, once we train them, we turn them into uh, freelance entrepreneurs, so meaning uh, they can set up their own little business at our hub premises and use our you know, uh, hardware and software and our bandwidth to start running their own little businesses, serving the Zimbabwean community. Some have already started serving people hmm. as far as Europe and the USA. 
And um, I think where the social entrepreneurship kicks in is in the fact that we actually have no criteria in terms of recruiting um, who would be a part of it. Wow. Uh, we've got guys who six months ago did not know how to create an app, and now they are able to create an app and make money from it. And the training is absolutely free. And then how Mozinda makes money is that from every job that the entrepreneur then charges on to mm. his client, we take a percentage of it. And that's how Mazinda, you know, becomes sustainable and also makes uh, some profit. Tendai Mashengadze, team leader of the Muzinda Hub Zimbabwe. And you also heard from Karen Krieger, Senior Programs Manager at the Gordon Institute of Business Science, as well as Andy Hadfield, CEO of the For Good Social Network. And they were speaking to Channel Africa's Benjamin Moshatama. HIV complacency. In this week's health slot, we reflect on the HIV pandemic already over 30 years old and with no cure in sight. Development agencies are concerned that public attention towards HIV seems to be reducing. And this is especially worrisome in eastern and southern Africa, which remains the epicenter of the epidemic. Jane Rabotata has this report. With 400,000 new infections every year, South Africa is still the country with the highest incidence of HIV in the world, and the statistics for youth contracting the virus are shocking. The Center for the AIDS Program Research in South Africa, CAPRISA, this week released a study which shows a trend of girls contracting HIV from older men. Although the Southern Africa region only constitutes 5% of the global population, it is home to about 20% of people living with HIV globally. Eastern Africa is the second most affected region by HIV and AIDS in the world after Southern Africa. Despite remarkable progress to curb the epidemic, there's mounting concern that it is losing public attention. Dr. Akinyele Dairo is the practice manager for sexual and reproductive health at the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, Office for Southern and Eastern Africa. Some of the challenges that um, we're seeing as a development agency is that when we live with some issues or some challenges. It becomes like part of us and complacency comes in. So that issue of HIV AIDS um, got to that stage. Though we've made some good progress with, with reducing infection by almost in some places 40%, some places uh, 50%, in some places um, 25% among young people. And uh, the number of people dying from HIV AIDS has really improved. But if we still look at the challenges that we have ahead, for example, in East and Southern Africa, as small as we might be, for example, East and Southern Africa accounts for about 46% of the population of Africa. But yet we account for about half of the new infections and the number of people living on, with HIV AIDS in the whole world. So you can imagine in terms of fraction that that is very high. Dr. Dairo points out that new infections are still on the rise. For example, in the whole of the region, we have um, an average infection of between 700 to 900,000 new infections a year. In some countries, it's as high as about uh, 70,000. In some countries, about two to 300,000. So that aspect of new infection is still there. The top thing is the number of people that are able to access antiretroviral has improved in some countries that are able to afford it, like in South Africa, like in Botswana, but in many other countries where they are not able to afford treatment for HIV, it is still a major challenge in many of those countries. The fourth point that is a major challenge for us is the issue of complacency on even part of some of our leaders. Because they've worked on it, they've done everything. When the issue was of major concern, everybody rose to it and everything. The attention improved in some countries, the new infection reduced. But when they were distracted or probably derailed from their focus, 
and the ownership and leadership, then the infection started going up again. The recent Caprisa study revealed that the risk is particularly great for high school learners because they are more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior. Girls are more vulnerable as they tend to have unprotected sex with older men who are likely to have already been infected by the HIV virus. Dr. Dara also maintains that new infections among young people are a concern. From age of about 10 to 14, actually the biggest hazard is from 15 to 19. And that's when young people are experiencing sexuality or sex for the first time because they didn't have the information of how to protect themselves on how to take care of themselves. And some of them not knowing that if they engage in sexual unprotected sexual intercourse, that they can have HIV infection. The Joint United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS, UNAIDS, leads and inspires the world to achieve its shared vision of zero new infections, zero discrimination, and zero AIDS-related deaths. UNAIDS Strategic Information Advisor Lawrence Mashimbie. Six years ago, we didn't have the treatment for, for HIV. The campaign or the messages around HIV and AIDS have focused mainly on this as a deadly virus that we don't have treatment for. But uh, we speak today, we have the treatment to manage HIV and AIDS, and then that makes it a long-term condition that people can manage through treatment. In that case, we will expect that HIV and AIDS diminish, diminish because people have moved from the focus of the virus as um, uh, the virus that is deadly and without treatment into being a condition that could be managed through treatment. So um, the virus is still with us, HIV is still with us, and it will be with us at least for some time. But we have an opportunity to end AIDS as a public health threat by 2018. HIV is not like any other chronic disease. It is primarily sexually transmitted, and if people are to avoid infection, they need to practice safe sex. Asked if people have become complacent about HIV, this is what Mashimbe has to say. It is expected that if the epidemic doesn't have treatment, you will have people being uh, even more cautious, focusing more on prevention. But uh, once you have treatment, you will uh, also observe that people will start focusing on that this as a long-term condition that could be managed through treatment. To that extent, sort of the risk behaviors around the HIV will move to a certain extent, but prevention is still better than cure. We still need to focus on prevention of HIV. And you will also remember that in the population level, when we increase the number of people that are on treatment, we are increasing the number of people that are virally suppressed, meaning having the low levels of virus in their blood. And in that case, we're reducing the chances of people transmitting the virus. And in the population level, treatment becomes also a prevention because we're reducing the spread of HIV by reducing the level of transmission among the people that are already infected. So it's prevention in two ways, prevention through behavior change, but also through putting more people on treatment to reduce their infectivity level. Mashimbia calls for a revival of the prevention is better than cure message. It is the messages around prevention that we should keep in mind through the billboards, mass media, etc. We should keep the messages alive that HIV is still a public health threat and the levels of infection amongst young women are still high. And we should uh, keep those messages in public spaces and talk to young people about those messages. UNFPA's Dr. Akinyele Dairo also argues that the idea of prevention can only be realized when people are informed about how they can protect themselves and their partner, and if infected, how they can take care of themselves and prevent further infection. He adds that HIV treatment needs to be made available for all in need, especially young people. 
you know the way young people do things. Many of them have not even undertaken the counseling and testing to know if they are positive or not to be able to access the services. And those who have uh, even done the testing and counseling, the denial is still there, the stigmatization is still there, the rejection by the loved ones is still there, so it's another issue. The third thing is that, you know, young people normally, for them to access um, youth-friendly services uh, that is supportive, is also not there. So those kind of restrictions are there. So we need to make a concerted effort to make sure that not only do we get young people to have the counseling and testing, we also need to make sure that we follow up with them to ensure that they access the treatment that they need. But I think I want us to emphasize more prevention among young people than treatment. That's Dr. Akinyele Dairo, Practice Manager for the Sexual and Reproductive Health at the United Nations Population Fund. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Kharahad have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. Now time for our final economic report. Here's Asanda Matsunyane. Good evening. The Chief Executive Officer of Power Utility, ESCOM, Brian Mulefe, has assured South Africans that there will be no load shedding in the coming months, including the winter season. He says the power utility has at the same time been able to reduce diesel costs from $95.65 billion US dollars in July last year to about $11.7 billion in January this year. He has also promised that the Unit 5 of Midupi will be available for commercial operation in the next six months. Unplanned outages have been a downward trend over the last quarter, further illustrating the success of the maintenance festival during the festive season. The new build program remains on track for delivery on the P80 schedule and our prognosis is that there will be no load shedding for summer, the remainder of summer, for autumn as well as into winter. Poultry farmers are said to be hard hit by increased poultry imports set out in the Africa Growth Opportunity Act, AGOA, between South Africa and the U.S. This is according to agricultural economist Herman van Skalkweg, who says local farmers will struggle to compete with imports. To meet AGOA expectations, South Africa is until March 15 to fully comply with the U.S. import of poultry as well as other meat. Sintleng Lehihi reports. Because, um, of the AGOA. 
agreement, we will probably see a lot of um, imports from the United States. And on this side, we struggle to compete as a result of the very expensive um, maize prices. Um, so the farmers in the poultry industry will, will suffer. The World Bank says Zimbabwe's economic growth is expected to remain at 1.5% in 2016 as the country faces economic headwinds. The projections are lower than the 27 and 2.8% set by government and the IMF. In its first Zimbabwe economic update released on Wednesday, the World Bank says the outlook for 2016 remains difficult and growth is expected to remain low as a result of severe drought in 2015 and a depressed global mineral price. Zimbabwe says 3 million people will need food aid this season, double the initial estimate. The 10th biannual U.S.-Africa Summit is underway in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The summit, which aims to help the American private sector find investments in Africa, has brought together 1,200 delegates, mostly from the United States, but also some from Turkey and China. Africa is targeting 7% growth, at which it hopes to be able to eradicate poverty. However, Africa has grown enough to have its own voice and demands on the type of investment suited to the continent. African Union Chairperson Kosazana Lamini Zuma says Americans must change their investment style to have projects that will have direct impact on the lives of Africans. Looking at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is at 16.03 to the South African Rand, 11.28 to the Botswana Pula and 11.20 to the Zambian Kwacha, 0.69 to the British Pound and 0.91 to the Euro. On the commodities, gold is at $1,126, platinum at $856 an ounce, while Brent crude is $32.53 a barrel. Channel Africa Economics News, I'm Asanda Matsawunyani. And now time for our final sports report of the show. Here's Fikile Linguati with the latest. First up in our sports update this hour, starting off with football news. As the only African candidate to be involved in these elections, after the FIFA Ethics Committee excluded Musa Billiti of Liberia after failing integrity checks, many would think that Africa would be fully behind Tokyo Sekhwali. But it's not that easy in football elections as elements of sabotage can also be ruled, cannot be ruled out, especially on this continent. Even SAFA President Denis Jordan knows that there's nothing guaranteed for Sekhwali in Kigali for, for, for the elections. Well, you're asking me to speculate. Uh, of course, uh, there is, it would be extraordinary if you're an African candidate uh, and you don't get the backing of Africa. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. And those are the matters that we'll discuss. But also there's a possibility that he will get the African endorsement. So I, that's why I don't want to speculate on the one side only. What if on the other side? So, so those are what ifs and therefore speculation. Let us go and sit down with the leadership and discuss this matter. Whilst the leadership in front of the media presented a positive front, SABC Sport understands that Sikwale got some little bit of grilling during the Tuesday session, especially on his campaign. 
No, an engagement is an engagement. We asked him to engage us and he did engage us. Uh, so I, the word concern was not used in the meeting. Uh, so it didn't arrive. What we want to do is to go and deal with CAP, give them a full update on the, on the matter, and, and then we'll take it from there. Uh, it's just two days, so just be patient. The first, as I understand, the first, as I understand, is Friday, so uh, you can still make your deadline. He's going to go to the 20s in tennis news world number three roger federer will be out of action for a month after having anthroscopic knee surgery the 34 year old seven times grand slam champion had the surgery in his native switzerland to repair a torn meniscus he was injured the day after his australian open semi-final defeat by novak Djokovic last week he is the reigning champion in dubai having secured his seventh title there last march and has won twice in rotterdam on to golf news, Rory McElroy is a firm favorite as he chases a hat-trick of wins at the Omega Desert Classic. The world number two defends his title at the Emirates course against a strong field including Hendrik Stenson, Louis Oshazen and Graham McDowell. Nick Dye reports. McElroy first played this event as a teenage amateur. He's had connections with Dubai throughout his career and always starts his season with practice and competition in this part of the world. He finished on a mightily impressive 22 under par last year for a three-strokes victory. And after a good performance in Abu Dhabi, most people will expect him to go close again. Stenson gave himself a rest after that first event of the desert swing. He says his knee won't be 100% for months, but the game is in good shape, and he's another former champion here. Ersthazen led in Qatar before a top-10 finish. McDowell is buoyant after a win at the end of last season. The weather and the course are perfect. Low scoring, likely. And Buki's favourite, Ashley Simon, lived up to the expectations when she vaulted to the top of the leaderboard with a sizzling 5 under 66 to lead by a stroke on day 2 of the Tswane Ladies Open at Zwarskop Golf Estate. Simon had one of the best back nines of her life as she carried a rare 29 that comprised of 6 birdies after turning at 1 over 37, courtesy to lone bogey on the 6th hole. Well, my goal was off the turning in the front nine. I wanted to at least shoot four under on the back nine. And then once I got it to four under, I was like, okay, well, you know, let's try to get two more going in at least. And, uh, yeah, the hole just looked like a bucket and uh, I hold everything coming in. So it was a good feeling. You were the bookies' favorite this <laughs> week and you lived up to it. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully I can keep going, you know. I've been close the last few weeks, been in contention. So, um, you know, hopefully tomorrow I can just keep doing what I'm doing and, and I'll come out on top. Nonetheless, overnight leader Nobu Lamini of Swaziland had the worst time in the office on Wednesday when she toppled herself out of contention with a disappointing 8 over 79. The former South African number one amateur Lamini is 16 places down the leaderboard on plus five. Yeah, I had a tough time today. Uh, I just struggled with the tee box, to be honest. And this golf course is tight, you got to hit some fairways. Yesterday I was quite consistent of the tee, hit lots of fairways and made a lot of putts. My putting wasn't bad at all, uh, but it would have helped to eat it better off the tee box. You almost, you know, saved the best for last, like, just like yesterday, <laughs> what you did left out there. Yeah, I mean, actually 18 was one of my better drives today. Uh, I hit a big one down the middle, and a 7-9 in. Unfortunately, unfortunately my, my ego putt lived out, so I'll take the birdie there. That's the Sport News this hour.
This is Africa Digest. Recapping top stories this hour, South Africa's suspended police commissioner readies for a fight. Charges laid against two top apartheid leaders. Kia Motors plans to launch its first sports sedan only next year. Sportswise, Tokyo Sekhwale takes his presidential campaign to CAF. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Jazarad, producer Luyana Maome, technical producer Obakwe Mukunzangwe, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. You can SMS us, plus 27 796 957 930. Taking us through top of the hour, here's We Dance Again by Black Coffee featuring Nakane Ture. That's on Channel Africa.